Welcome to Between the Bylines, a weekly podcast from the Boston University News Service, where we unpack must-read stories from the past week through the lens of student journalism. Hear how the story was made from the writers and the editors who made it. It's September 20th, 2019, and I'm Susanna Sudborough. And I'm Hannah Harn. This week, we're in the studio with Sarah Garcia, who reported on new efforts to curb the illegal ivory trade here in Boston. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Hi. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I am from Houston, Texas. I am a senior, second semester senior right now here at BU, and I'm a journalism major with a focus in photography. And that story I just wrote is actually coming out of the State House program that I am now in this semester. Um, And that was the first story that I got out um, within these past few weeks. And uh, yeah. Very exciting. Well, congratulations. Thank you. so how's the state program, state house program been going for you? That's pretty good. I was just, I actually just got assigned to uh, the newspaper I'll be reporting for. I'll be reporting for the New Bedford Standard Times, mm-hmm. um, who is also South Coast today, I believe. Um, yeah, so that's really exciting. Haven't put out any work for them yet. Um, my first piece was for BU News Service, so. Well, thank you so yeah. much for, for gracing us. Of course. With your first story. <laughs> Um, So I'm really curious, um, how did you come up with the idea for this story? So a nice thing about the State House is that they release their advances every week. So they're going to put up a schedule of what they'll be discussing, the hearings that will be going on. Um, I myself have a deep interest and passion for the environment and animals. And so when I saw that the Joint Committee for the Environment, Agriculture, and Natural Resources was going to be doing a hearing, I was like, oh, I have to go to that. Um, The way that these hearings work is that they're going to discuss a multitude of issues. So um, on the agenda for that day was dealing with research animals and how they're treated within scientific facilities and the kind of rights that they have. And they wanted a a bill to get out to make sure that those facilities are going to be making sure that all those animals, if they are healthy after their term of research, have the opportunity to be adopted out, which is something that Massachusetts doesn't have. Massachusetts also doesn't regulate boarding facilities for dogs and cats. So, yeah. um, But obviously the really big one, um, which I chose to cover, is illegal ivory trade within Massachusetts. And, you know, there were a lot of really interesting facts that came out of that, like that Boston and Cambridge together make up the seventh largest trade, illegal trade market within the U.S. Mm -hmm. U.S. itself internationally is only, comes in second behind China for the illegal ivory trade market. Wow. Um, And then Boston alone on Craigslist comes in at number four for the largest market for illegal ivory trade on Craigslist, which is super random. Um, Yeah. Did you have any idea that Boston was such a big hub for the ivory trade before you did this story? I honestly never would have guessed. I don't really think it's something that would have crossed my mind because a lot of people believe that, um, which is true, that it is banned, illegal ivory trade is, is banned federally. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it only covers raw ivory, so like an actual tusk or a rhino horn. Like you can't, you know, go out and sell that. But um, it doesn't cover, the Obama administration 
um, did that, banned that, and I believe it was 2016. And then it doesn't ban interstate trade. So, or it bans inter. Yeah, sorry. Does not ban interstate trade, bans trade between different states. Mm-hmm. So, like, say someone in Mass has something, they can't sell it to someone in Rhode Island, but there's no regulation on singular states. What was your reaction when you found out that this place that we call home is apparently a hub for something I think we all find distasteful? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I would almost say that I'm not surprised because there is so much that we overlook and don't pay attention to and we don't think matters. Um, The scale was honestly kind of – it took – take me aback you know mm-hmm. but um and just that like there was a lot of, of regulation or lack of regulation going on at some of these places like the Humane Society came out with that um, investigation they did at the New Bedford Whaling Museum antique show mm-hmm. and they they had almost no regulations to check and see if their vendors were you know g- obtaining these things illegally Mm-hmm. Um, or legally. So I just I just think that there are a lot of oversights and that a lot of people think that things are being done when there's really not a whole lot set in place. I think that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do we have any idea why Massachusetts is apparently such a hub for the ivory trade? I don't know if that was something you looked into at all. I hadn't honestly looked into that. I mean, the market itself in the U.S. is stemmed really just from poaching. I mean, the one thing that some other countries and other their religions and and traditions that believe that ivory can be used for medicinal purposes, the irony of it as, um, you know, some of the representatives and and people who testified at the hearing is that um, said is, is that the ivories turned into trinkets that look like elephants. Why Massachusetts happens to be a hub for that, I'm not sure. There are a lot of antiques here. It's an old place. Maybe mm-hmm. that could be why, but yeah. Sure. I mean, do you know like who it is, like who the main buyers for the ivory is? I mean, either here or globally. Because um, I was thinking like, you know, who, who is fueling this? Well, you know, yeah. and also um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services deemed that threatened animals in the wild can only be hunted if they believe that hunting them is somehow going to, you know, refuel their population, you know. Um, In those cases, if it has been legally harvested, I'm not one for hunting, but if they think that that's going to better the environment, sure, okay. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people are – none of these – I mean, I personally don't believe that really any of these things are being obtained legally. Yeah. You know, and unless it's being used, I obviously like for educational purposes, which is like a huge thing. Like you should be using these things to educate people and on the issue and like on the creatures that they're coming from, because elephants and rhinos are like incredible creatures that live on this earth. And I don't know. I think that that for that reason, yeah, to have it as something on your mantelpiece, mm-hmm. I'm not the one making rules here, but <laughs> probably what not. The need? <laughs> no. Um. So. One of the things that I thought was really interesting in the article that you mentioned was the extension, potential extension of the protection to mammoth tusks right. as well. Mm-hmm. 
from whence cometh these mammoth tusks? <laughs> I, that was that was I was really surprised by that. I wasn't expecting that at all. Yeah. So uh, people are going up into the Arctic, and as the permafrost is melting, obviously due to climate change, and um, people are finding these artifacts pretty much, and, and fossils, and um, mammoths are not covered by the Endangered Species Act because they are, in fact, extinct. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it doesn't protect extinct animals. And it's just melt- the, when the ice melts, people find it, and they're like, oh, like this is a great replacement. It is, in fact, not because it's just only going to fuel the market even more because people are going to think that these things are more readily available and I mean and that's going to run out. And it, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. they're extinct. They we can't just breed more Bring of them. them back. They're going to that's <laughs> going to go away resource. and then it's going to become even more kind of pressing I think to get them if you have that strange craving for ivory. Sure. You know, so I think it, it seems it would only create more of an issue. Yeah, um, absolutely. I honestly had kind of thought of it as something that was like an old-timey thing that Mm -hmm. would have died out by now. Yeah. Like, or if it existed, I would have expected it not to exist here, which is definitely, like, it's good because it questions my perspective. There are a lot of issues that you, like, just don't think, you know, happen in the U.S., and they totally do. I mean, it's almost not surprising because game hunting is is huge. You know, I, I come from the South and from Texas, and there's a lot of hunting going on there. There's a lot of hunting going on in California, Mm -hmm. surprisingly. Um, And, you know, you would think that we would be moving forward forward with these things. I think that sometimes we take a lot of steps back. Like um, yesterday they found out, or it was released, that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has um, accepted this man's application to bring back the carcass of a lion that he shot, a threatened lion mm-hmm. that he shot in Africa in 2016. They're afraid that this is going, you know, it sounds like something small, you know, it's it's one lion, like, you know, he was allowed to do it, but it seems like it's something that might domino effect into the decision to just allow, you know, undo the ban that the Obama administration put on uh, shooting um, elephants for game mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, yeah. you know, there's just a, it's a lot of little things. I want to zoom out a little, or sure. I guess zoom in a little bit. Um, so why do you think it's taken Massachusetts um, so long to get a law like this? So I asked the same question of Stephanie Harris, who's with the Animal Legal Defense Fund. Mm-hmm. Her answer was a little <laughs> vague for my taste. Um, she was very insightful. She was there advocating for the bills um, as 772 and H-496. And, um, you know, she just said, oh, it's a it's a new bill and it's gone through session. Well, it's gone through session three times. I know that. And it takes a while for these things to happen. Why it's relatively new, I don't know. Could it be because of this report that the Humane Society has released? Mm. Potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely, you know, on the heels of that. But it actually, that report came out, I believe, uh, just a, a couple weeks ago. It was carried out in May, though. Um, so... I'm not really sure, if I'm honest, why it's taken them so mm-hmm. long. Perhaps because they thought that the federal law was enough. But, you know, the fact that it doesn't cover mammoth trade and, you know, it doesn't cover trade within a single state, people might be starting to realize, like, oh, 
this is an issue. There are 10 other states now, New York, New Hampshire being a couple of them, also California, I believe, mm-hmm. um, you know, that are, are setting up these these state regulations as opposed to just following the federal law. And I, I just don't think that people realize that there are a lot of loopholes in right. federal laws that they just can't cover from state to state. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you when we were talking earlier, you said that there's been some developments uh, since you published the story. So not necessarily within the state house. It's um, they have they I oh, was it today? I read it that it came out yesterday. It potentially came out today. Um, scientists have taken there are only two white rhinos left on the earth. Uh, they are both female. Um, they have harvested their eggs and inseminated them with two uh, rhino male rhino. Um, semen that came from them in the Czech zoo. Uh, They Mm -hmm. died. uh, I don't want to tell you the time period, probably a couple years ago. But they had taken that, harvested it, and they're hoping to create these embryos and potentially bring back the species from extinction because there are, they are literally on the brink. There is no way for them to replicate um, without science intervention, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great, we're talking about all of these, like, really you know, heavy things and, mm-hmm. like, you know, the the end of animals as we know them. And, you know, they even mentioned in the hearing that in the near future, like, when our kids are around, like, they're going to look at, you know, rhinos and elephants like they're dinosaurs, you know, the way we look at dinosaurs, you know. And that's pretty heavy stuff. But, like, we have to remember that, like, there is a lot of hope for some of these things. And, and science is doing a lot to to help speed that up. And I think that a lot of advocacy and and being aware that these things are occurring and going to your representatives and being like, hey, you know, like this is happening. What's my state doing about it? Mm -hmm. There's a lot, there's a lot of things that you can do to stop, you know, imminent death. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think we want to take it, uh, take our scope a little bit back towards um, your reporting process. One of the hardest parts and one of the easiest parts about working on this story. I want to say that probably the hardest part is sitting in a room of officials that are supposed to care about these kinds of things mm-hmm. and kind of watching the disinterest on their face. Yeah. Mm. I'm someone that's very passionate about these kinds of things, obviously. Um, and, you know, seeing people that are in charge of making these decisions, it's a little disheartening, I think. It's a little concerning also. On the part of the committee, I wish I had seen more people engaged, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the people that show up there, the reps that show up there, uh, some of the senators that show up there to back these bills, they are incredibly passionate. They really do put in the time and effort that they need to, that I mm-hmm. think that these these kinds of things deserve. And, you know, so many people came out to testify for, these, for this and for, you know, all the bills that were there. And I, I feel like that's very uplifting, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel like that. And I also feel like, you know, obviously the usual you you ask a question and people are going to give you the the blanket statement that they always get Mm -hmm. your give. You know, it's I think it's a little it's a little harder to dig deeper on these issues because we want something to be done and they want something to be done. They haven't really decided how they're going to carry that out yet. You know, Mm -hmm. one of the questions I asked, how are how is this going to be regulated? Like once you get this bill in place. What are what are you gonna do about it? You know, like yeah. how are how are you gonna go? You're gonna send investigators everywhere you go, and they just don't really have an answer for that. You know, there's a, there's 
apparently, unbeknownst to me, there's an environmental police of Massachusetts. They are supposed to be regulating these kinds of things. I, I would assume that involves, you know, people like park rangers and stuff like that. But, you know, how are they going to be everywhere? How are they going to know, like, what regulation or, like, what credentials these people have? You know, I don't know. I don't really know how the process works. Obviously, it's not working very well mm-hmm. <laughs> at the moment. Um, and I'm not really sure they know how they're going to kind of carry this out. I think they – but that being said, you know, you need a basis for everything. And, and I think that starting from the bottom, which is, you know, putting a ban on it in the first place, that's going to scare some people out of doing it in the first place. And then, you know, from there we'll take whatever precautions necessary, I guess, that they feel they're going to need. Um, you've mentioned several times, like, you're pretty passionate about this issue. Um, where does that come from? So growing up, uh, pretty much from the time that I could talk, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, I've always had a passion for the environment um, and animals. I have five dogs at home. I have (laughs) pretty much my friends would describe my home as kind of a zoo. Um, I always have had a lot of pets and, and, you know, I just, I used to volunteer at the Houston Zoo. Um, Eventually, I also realized that I have a deathly fear of needles. So (laughs) working as a veterinarian (laughs) wasn't in my future. Um, So I figured the next best step would be, you know, to find a way to raise awareness. Mm -hmm. I think of the importance of protecting animals in the environment and, you know, showing people the beauty that we have on this earth that I don't think a lot of people take the time to actually, you know, acknowledge or care for. Yeah, I think that's that's where it stemmed from. I want people to care the way I do, and that, that might be hard on some level because, you know, sometimes you have to see to believe, but, um, you know, I'm doing what I can, I guess. For sure. So I think uh, we're about to wrap up, um, but I wanted to ask you, what did you take away from this experience, you know, for other journalists um, or just in other important messages? You know, I feel like the feedback I got from this article um, was really uplifting and people being like, you know, I really didn't know that this was an issue. And I think that the takeaway for me is that report on what you're passionate about because even if it might not seem like a big deal you really are educating people and I I think that these things are really important for people in the public to be educated about and you never know who might read you know what you're writing and who who might be higher up that might be able to to truly make a difference or to start something you might inspire someone to get to back this you know it's it's I think those are the takeaways Well, thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. We really loved having you on the show. And that's it for this week's episode of Between the Bylines. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next week. For the full version of Sarah's story, visit bunewsservice.com slash podcasts and click on today's episode. And don't forget to join us at our pitch meeting on Wednesday at 530 in Com B29. We'd like to thank today's contributing writer, Sarah Garcia, as well as our production team. This week's episode of Between the Bylines was produced by me, Hannah Harn. And be sure to check out our latest episode of Friday Five, where we fill you in on the latest news from Boston and beyond. Visit us online at bunewsservice.com slash podcasts for more information.